0: The first letter of Peter. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn there. We begin a new sermon series today that will take us approximately up to the Easter season. And Peter wrote this letter to be circulated among the churches of his day. Uh, If you've seen the very nice graphic that Savannah made it's not up there right now, but uh, it's uh, we're calling this series "Hope-Filled Christians in a Post-Christian World," uh, because Peter wrote this letter to believers in a pre-Christian world. Yeah, there it is. I like that. He wrote his letter to, to Christians in a pre-Christian world, and what he has to say applies to us in a post-Christian world. And I say, post-Christian. Because it's very clear that Christianity, which shaped our American society for over 300 years, no longer has the influence that it once has, no longer has the approval that it once had. Those of us who are older remember a time when just about everybody, it seemed, went to church. Companies took off Good Friday as a national holiday. Um, we sang Christmas carols about Christ the Savior is born in our public high school, or our public grade school. Uh, People, by and large, agreed, at least in principle, what it looked like to live a moral life. Uh, Morals that were derived from scriptures, such as marriage being between one man and one woman and gender being determined by God at birth and not later on by our choice, and that a child in the womb is to be protected and valued as a person. Those were just commonly assumed morals. That's not the case anymore, is it? Uh, Now if you hold to these things, you are less and less tolerated in what is supposedly a more tolerant society. Believers in America are now outside the mainstream. And we face anything from indifference to outright hostility if you're a faithful Christian, depending on where you live and what you do. So that's nothing compared to what Christians around the world face in persecution in places like Sudan. So how do we respond to the reality of being a Christian in a post-Christian world like ours? Well, we could do one of three things. We could live in denial and pretend that that isn't happening, but you know that that won't work. If you pretend you don't have cancer, it doesn't make you healthier. Uh, We could compromise, and we could try to blend into the world so we avoid getting into trouble, but that's not really an option for believers, because we're supposed to be in the world, though not of the world. Uh, We're supposed to have our light on a stand and not under a basket. Or we could do this, we could live hopefully, we could live even joyfully, unashamed of the gospel and unafraid of man, despite our situation. We could do that. Peter's letter was written so that we could do that. So that you could live hopefully, joyfully even, in the world as it is. (laughs) Uh, He wrote to believers in a time when they were few and far between within the first 30 years or so of the church's development in the world. Uh, The surrounding culture of his day was thoroughly pagan and often hostile to them, but this letter isn't gloomy. (laughs) Uh, In fact, it is exuberant. It's filled with hope. It's even got excitement in it. Uh, It contains probably the most elevated pronouncement of Christian joy in the whole Bible. In verse 8, you believe in Christ and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He said that to Christians who were persecuted in a pre-Christian world. He said, you have a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. I can't wait to get to that verse and preach about what that means. Um, But it's joy. It's full of exuberance, this letter. So our goal in this series is to be hope-filled Christians in a post-Christian world by learning what Peter said to them, what he communicated to them, because it applies to us today. So would you follow with me as we read in God's Word in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, and then we'll pray. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Well, that's our prayer, Lord, that grace and peace would be multiplied to us now. <laughs> As you open up our eyes and our hearts to what you said to the believers dispersed across the world 2,000 years ago, which still matters now, which still is true for us now. Would you produce in us that peace that comes from knowing your grace? We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this introduction may be only two verses, but it's packed with information about the identity of believers in Jesus. There are themes here that are going to be expanded on in the rest of the letter, but they're sort of condensed right now as a heads up. Um, If you're a Christian, if you have a genuine trust in Jesus as Savior, there are certain things that are true of you, things that Peter calls to mind here that you and I need to know. What exactly is your position and your purpose in this life? How do you, or how are you different from the non-believing world all around you? Uh, Do you know who you are, (laughs) my Christian brother or sister? Uh, Peter tells us, and I see in this passage six statements about your identity as a believer in Christ. And we're going to unpack them like gifts from the Operation Christmas Child shoebox. Uh, God has sent us a shoebox Full of gifts today in verses 1 and 2, and and we're going to pull out six things that are in there that he put in there, uh, has sent to you to say, I want you to think about these things, and I want you to have the experience of those kids in the Philippines who are opening their boxes in December. I want you to be excited about what I'm giving you. So that's how we're going to approach this passage. We're going to look at six things that are true of you as a Christian. Here's the first one. You are chosen by God to be blessed and to be a blessing. You are chosen by God to be blessed and be a blessing. I'm sure you didn't see those words in there, but the thought is contained in this greeting to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, now other translations read that differently. The NIV says, "...to God's elect strangers in the world." scattered throughout all these places that are named. But elect exiles of the dispersion is the most literal rendering of the three Greek words behind that phrase. And when you say it this way, then it's an unmistakable reference to the people of Israel. Uh, We know from the Old Testament that Israel as a nation was elect. They were chosen by God to be his own people, and they were chosen for a purpose. So you go all the way back to Genesis 12. 12.2, 12:2, 12, 12, God says to Abraham or Abram, "I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing." So God promised a nation that would descend from Abraham. This nation would be blessed, and they would be a blessing to all the nations around them. And God would enter into a covenant with them. I will be your God and you will be my people. So he's going to provide for them. He's going to protect them. He's going to save them. His favor is going to be on them so that they in turn can be this instrument of blessing to all the other nations. They're his chosen people. And this, this nation was birthed, as it were, as they left Egypt, as they were rescued out from slavery and crossed the Red Sea and they entered into their own land and we called them Israel. That was his chosen people that were to be blessed and to be a blessing. But what happened to Israel? You look at your Old Testament history and you know that they went into exile. Uh, because after hundreds of years of unfaithfulness to God and not being a blessing that they were supposed to be, God let them be conquered. And the Assyrians came in and took out northern kingdom, and the Babylonians came in and took out the southern kingdom, and they they took them out of there. They went into exile. They were scattered through the nations. Many of them came back. They built a new temple, but there still remained, many of them, just kind of all over the place. And so even in D- Jesus' day, even in Peter's day, they were scattered in John 7 um, they said, Jesus has said, where I'm going, you cannot come. And the Jews said, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? See, the Jews are scattered all over the place, even in their day. So when Peter writes to the elect exiles of the dispersion, he's saying, I'm writing this letter to you, God's chosen people, the nation.'" descended from Abraham to be blessed, to be a blessing to the world, which is why some commentators would say, well, he's writing to the Jewish Christians then. Uh, He's writing to the, the Israelites who put their faith in Christ, and that's all he means here because the language is so connected to Israel. But here's the encouraging thing for you and me, friends. Peter is actually writing this letter mainly to believers like you and me who don't come from a Jewish background. He's mainly writing it to the Gentile believers. Because in chapter 2, for example, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. (laughs) Well, the Jews were they were already a people. They knew that. that. That's their identity. I'm a people, but he's saying, no, you weren't a people because you were Gentile believers. You came out of the pagan world, but now you're a people. He's writing to you and me. He's talking to Gentile believers. This is a letter for all believers. And it means that you and I, believers in Jesus in Colorado in 2017, are the elect people of God, the true Israel of God, with whom he has entered into a covenant. I will be your God, and you will be my people. I've chosen you to be blessed and to be a blessing to the nations. Now, here's why that's good news. That explains why we can so freely claim Old Testament promises that God made to Israel. You've no doubt claimed some of them. I was uh, in a crowd of runners starting a race one day. I think it was Grandma's Marathon. And I saw a guy with uh, Isaiah 40 31 tattooed onto his leg. And. uh, It says, that verse says, They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not get weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, I don't think that God gave that promise so that this guy could finish the marathon. I don't think that that was a guarantee that he was not going to grow weary (laughs) in 26 miles. But it is a promise that the Lord will bear you up in all things as you trust in him. And you can claim it. Because even though that was said to Israel, God is saying, you believers here now, you Gentile believers, you're the true Israel. You're the recipients of that promise. You're God's covenant people. That's why you won't grow weary. That's why I'm going to hold you up. Because you have my favor. I've chosen to bless you. That's good news. Peter starts out with good news. You are the chosen people of God to be blessed and to be a blessing. Let's continue. Here's more good news about your identity. You're a temporary resident away from your true home. You're a temporary resident away from your true home. That's what the word exile means. It means you are displaced from your homeland. Uh, To use an older word, you are a sojourner. That means you are not where you belong. You are a temporary resident who's living away from your true home. Now, that might not sound like a good thing at first, to be displaced. (laughs) But when we think about it, this is actually very good news for us. First of all, what exactly is home? Well, home is where you settle. Home is where you can let your guard down and be yourself Home represents rest. Uh, Everything that I need to live is here. Home represents belonging. I'm surrounded by the people that love me. Uh, Home represents familiarity. This is my bedroom. That's my stuff. (laughs) I put it all there because that's the way I like it. (laughs) I feel like I'm in my element here. At least that's the way home is supposed to be when sin doesn't ruin it. And for many people, that isn't what home is like. But home should be that way. Home represents the place where you truly belong and where you find rest and you go, ah. You know, that's where you can put your feet up. Peter says to us, you're not home right now. You're not home. Whether you live in Pontus or Galatia or Asia or Aurora or Denver, wherever you live, Your real home is somewhere else, is what he's saying. This world is not your home. So where is it? Where is your home then? (laughs) Answer, your home is with God in the new heaven and the new earth. That's where you belong. That's where you are going to find your rest. He says in chapter 5, the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Your true home is in eternal glory. You are a citizen of a kingdom that is not of this earth. Your home is the city where there are no more tears, no more sorrows, no more suffering, just endless, joyful, meaningful activity in the presence of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus has gone there to prepare a place for you, and he will bring you to himself, he says in John 14. In his Father's house, there are many rooms. There's a place where you say, now this, this is where I can relax. This is where I'm going to be happy. This is where everything is the way I want it to be. And Jesus says, you have that place, but that place is not here. That place is in the eternal glory. It's there, but you don't live there right now. You live here. You are an exile from your true home. That's what Peter's telling us. Now, why is that good news? Well, if you're a Christian in a post-Christian world, you are going to feel more and more like a stranger in a strange land. And it is going to be hard to get comfortable here because we fear losing things in this life. Um, We tend to make this our home, and so because of that, we fear losing stuff. Uh, We're afraid of losing reputation. We're afraid of losing friends, comforts, possessions, jobs, freedoms, because we're tending to think, this is my place. This is where I have to thrive. This is all I've got. But the good news is, no, that isn't all you've got. (laughs) In fact, this is all temporary. Nothing that you have here can you hold on to, and none of it is essential for your eternal well-being. Because what's essential to your happiness is not here. It's there, (laughs) where home is. Everything that matters for eternity, that would make you rest and put up your feet and say, I'm, I'm here, I'm home. All of that is safe. All of that is someplace else. It, it can't be touched by the results of the next election. Right? We only worry because we think, no, no, this is my home. I've got to protect this. But Peter says, hey, don't worry. This isn't, where, this isn't your home. This isn't where it all is. You've got something else. <laughs> like the like the old hymn said this world is not my home i'm i'm just a passing through my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue <laughs> they are the treasures are laid up they're there and that's all you need for your happiness eternally it's it's guaranteed you, this world can't touch it that's good news uh, if i knew that this was all that there was if this is my true home Then, how can I be happy because everything here can be taken from you? Your health, your reputation, your house, your money, everything can go. But what if everything that matters is safe? Oh, now there is good news. That's good news for a Christian in a post Christian world. Here's another gift in God's shoebox for us today you are the object of God's loving purposes. From all eternity. The object of God's loving purpose is from all eternity. That's behind the phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You are elect exiles according to, or that is to say, your current situation has been brought about by the foreknowledge of God. You've been placed in this situation of being a Christian in a post-Christian world by design by design that was shaped by God's foreknowledge. So what does that word mean, foreknowledge? Because I'd rather not be a Christian in a post-Christian world, thank you very much. I'd rather be a Christian in a Christian world. (laughs) I'd like that much better if I could have my way. But if God's foreknowledge is a good thing, then maybe that means there's a good reason why I can't have my way. What then is God's foreknowledge? Well, the Greek word is prognosis, which in the medical field means to describe what the future course of a disease will be. So if a patient comes into the doctor with a sick stomach, and the doctor might say, you are sick because you have a virus. That's a diagnosis. That's knowledge. But if He says this virus will run its course in about a week and then you will feel better, that's prognosis. That's foreknowledge. Knowledge of what's going to happen before it happens. Well, God's foreknowledge is even better than knowing what's going to happen before it happens. It is God knowing what is going to happen because He purposes it to happen. 1 <laughs> Peter Verse 20, he says of Jesus that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. In other words, God the Father didn't just know Jesus before he created the world. He foreknew him. That is to say, he knew his Son from all eternity because the Son is is one of the Trinity but he foreknew his Son as the one that he was going to send into the world to make manifest the Son in our last times for our sakes in the person of Jesus Christ. He foreknew Jesus as the one he would send to die for our sins on the cross before we even existed. God's foreknowledge of Jesus was his loving purpose from all eternity to save a people for himself. And that's true for us too. God's foreknowledge of his elect exiles is not just that he knew a long time ago that we would be Christians in a post-Christian world. His foreknowledge is that he purposed for us to be Christians in a post-Christian world. He purposed it. I know it's going to happen because I'm going to make sure it happens. That's his foreknowledge. As Paul would say in Acts 17, 26, God has determined allotted periods and the boundaries of our dwelling place. It's his purpose to put us here in Colorado in 2017 as believers. And that comes from his loving fatherly heart, the same loving fatherly heart that he had for his own beloved son. We might say, well, that doesn't sound very good to me. (laughs) But friends, remember, he did the same thing for his beloved son, Jesus. He sent his own son into exile, away from his true home. Why? So that he might rescue us so that we might follow him into eternal joy, (laughs) so that there might be a people that don't have to bear the guilt of their sin and be punished for it. That was a loving purpose. That was the Father's purpose for sending his son into exile, and he has a loving purpose for you and me, to be where we are now when what we want to be is in our true home. (laughs) He has a loving purpose for that, and we'll see what some of those are as we go through First Peter, but we just know based on his character, based on what he did with Jesus, that he must have something good in mind for us too, or he wouldn't let us be here in this situation. It's God's love that put us where we are. A love from, from eternity, What he says to us through Jeremiah, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. You are a Christian in a post-Christian world because of God's everlasting love for you. For whatever reason, it's the right thing at the right time (laughs) for you and me. Our father's a good father, and he knows what he's doing. And it is good. Somebody once said that it isn't suffering that we can't endure. It's suffering without any purpose. That's what we can't endure. And Peter says, you have a purpose. God has purposed where you are and why you are there. Here's something else that describes your identity in this world as a believer. You are the object of the Spirit's transforming presence. You're the objects of the Spirit's transforming presence. That's not a major theme in Peter, but it's an important theme. It comes from that phrase, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Theologians sometimes get twisted up trying to narrowly define what that means. Some say, well, it's referring to what we call definitive sanctification. That specific moment in time where the Spirit of God sanctifies or sets you apart for God. Much like how the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of God and minister in the temple. Now others say, well, that refers to what we call progressive sanctification, which means that ongoing work of the Spirit to make you more and more free from sin and more like Jesus. Well, I think it's a good interpretive policy to not try to make a choice between two things that both work (laughs) and where we don't have to make the choice. I think both definitive and progressive sanctification fit into that phrase, in the sanctification of the Spirit. It fits with with Peter's purposes for the letter and what he's going to go on to describe. As a believer in Christ, something wonderful has already happened to you. At a point in time, you have been set apart for God. (laughs) You were chosen. Absolutely. You're you're not the same anymore. You moved from one kingdom to another. You went from death to life. you went from unresponsive to God to responsive to God. Yes, that happened for sure. Absolutely. You were born of the Spirit as John would say it in in John chapter 3. But the Spirit's also at work in you constantly making you more like Jesus and more free from sin. You look at the li- the writings of Luke and and Peter experienced this. Peter knows this from experience. Remember Peter at the end of the gospels, uh, I don't even know the guy. <laughs> you know he, gets, he has no courage to witness at all. Uh, he gets put on the spot. I think you're one of them. You, your accent gives you away. No, I, I'm, I don't know anything about Jesus. That's Peter. and then what happens? Pentecost comes, Luke or Acts chapter 2, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And all of a sudden Peter's out there in front of thousands of people saying, you crucified Jesus. <laughs> Repent. <laughs> Where'd that boldness come from? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Transformation. All of a sudden you're different and you start acting differently. Do you ever think that could happen to you? That you could have that kind of boldness? that you could be transformed from the thing that bothers you and that you feel stuck in, and that one day you could be free from that thing. That can happen. If God can take a, 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 a fisherman who's afraid to show his face in society <laughs> and turn him into a global apostle, he can do that for you. He can, take, he can change you. And he's going to as we cooperate with the Spirit <laughs> As we walk by the Spirit, as we pursue the Spirit's gifts and His power, yes, transformation happens. We're going to have a series on that after Easter, (laughs) as we're going to talk about earnestly desiring the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. We're going to have that down the road. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. He wants to produce that in us. Let's move on. Another description of your identity. You are chosen to obey Jesus Christ. You are chosen to obey Jesus Christ. That's obvious from the phrase, for obedience to Jesus Christ. You elect exiles. You are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus. That's what you've been set apart for. That's what He's doing in you. To make you more like that. In chapter 2, Peter's going to say, You were all straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You know, in our rebellion to God, we we think it's a good idea to just do what I want. You know, don't tell me to obey anybody. I'm going to be my own person, I'm going to decide for myself what to do. No, Don't talk about obeying people. I, I want to be free. I want to be free from all that. We think that's a good idea, to not have to obey anybody. <laughs> and, and Peter says, in chapter 2 at least, no, actually, that's a bad idea. That's a very bad idea, <laughs> because that makes you like a straying sheep. That makes you like one little sheep out there, vulnerable to the wolves. And you're going to get eaten. But here's what's a good thing. Here's what's good news for you. You've been chosen to not be like that. You've been chosen to come back to your shepherd and the overseer of your souls. You've been you've been chosen to come and follow the shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, the one whom you can trust that whatever he tells you to do is a good thing. It's a loving thing that he wants from you. It's a good thing. It's a privilege to obey and follow this good shepherd who's seeing over you, watching out for you, and who knows what's best for you. That's a, that's a privilege to do that. It's no privilege to be disobedient. <laughs> that's the curse. Uh, joy comes in obedience. You've been chosen for that, he says. It's a, it's a privilege to walk with Jesus. Uh, To obey your good shepherd. And and listen, here's one more observation about that. Notice that we are elect exiles to obey a person, not just a set of rules. We are called to obey a person, not just a set of rules. Uh, What if Peter had written, you are elect exiles for obedience to the Ten Commandments? (laughs) That would change the focus, wouldn't it? Then it would be all about rules. It would be all about the do's and the don'ts. And so you'd wake up and you'd say, well, today, I better not take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, today, I better not steal or lie or covet my neighbor's stuff. And that would be just a checklist, and I'd have to see how am I doing every day because this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm called to do the Ten Commandments if he wrote it that way. <laughs> and that doesn't sound very appealing, does it? I mean, I think after a short time we'd start to say, well, it's not worth it. I mean, already life is hard, and now I'm forced to obey commandments that I know will get me into trouble in this world. And that just doesn't sound fun. I think I'll just blend in. I think I'll just kind of tone that down and fit in. That would not be a good thing at all. If he wrote, you are elect exiles for obedience to the commandments, Now, should we obey the commandments? Sure. But what's missing if that's all we're called to? Relationship. Relationship with Jesus. Relationship with God would be missing. You see, we follow and we obey Jesus, the friend of sinners. The friend, Yes, He wants us to not sin, but we're dealing with the friend who died for our sins. We're dealing with the Lord who shows compassion on those who fear Him, for He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust, from Psalm 103. He knows you and I can't do it perfectly. We're going to obey. We're going to try to obey. We're going to seek it. We want to be holy. Peter's going to come back to that theme later. But we know that we're going to fail. We're never going to do it perfectly. But we're not just following a rule book that keeps on condemning us. We're following a person who was condemned in our place and who has made it easy to follow him. He's saying, I've already done. I've already taken care of the sin issue. You're, I've, I'm for you now. I'm for you. You're going to stumble. You're going to do things wrong. You're going to have days that you regret and wish that you could have over again, but I want you to know I'm for you. (laughs) I'm for you. My yoke is easy. My load is light. Yeah, there's things I want you to do, but I'm for you. I'm for you. (laughs) That's who we follow. And so the motivation for obeying Jesus is love. It's gratitude. It's Yes, of course, of course I want to do that. You're such a good shepherd. I want to be where you are. That's our motive. One more thing Peter says about your identity. you are chosen to be cleansed from all your sin. We've already started to go into that waters, but now let's go straight there. This is from the last phrase. You are elect exiles for sprinkling with his blood for sprinkling with his blood. That's one of the purposes God chose you for. That reaches back into the imagery of the Old Testament sacrifices, the animal sacrifices that were offered to atone for sin. One example is the cleansing of the leper. In Leviticus 14.7, you'd bring a pair of birds to the priest and the priest would sprinkle the blood. He would kill one of the birds. He'd sprinkle the blood seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. And then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. That's a picture of cleansing from the defilement of our sin. That's a picture of forgiveness. That's a picture of God putting it behind his back, dealing with it, taking that out of the way. The other bird goes free. This, this image of, it's gone now. You're cleansed now. Your sins are gone now. That's what that's a picture of. That's what Christ has done for all the elect exiles of the world. He removed from us the defilement of our sin by the sprinkling of his blood, and he has forgiven us, and we will continue to enjoy that forgiveness forever, for the rest of our lives. We're going to experience what John said in his first letter. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. A continual cleansing. A continual, yes, I fell, but Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. (laughs) A continual, yes, there's blood shed for me. Yes, it's dealt with. I can keep moving forward. You can't have a better hope than that. You can't have a better hope than to know that no matter what happens in your life, as you navigate the waters of being a faithful Christian in a post-Christian world, you are forgiven all of it, all of your faults. The blood of Jesus will continue to cleanse you from everything that we do wrong. God does not promise that our way in this world is going to be easy. There are things that are going to sadden us, things that are going to perplex us. Peter's going to name some of those things in his letter. The narrow road that leads to life is a hard road. But here's one burden that you don't have to bear on that road, trying to get God to be on your side. (laughs) Because He's already on your side. Like Hebrews 10.19 says, We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. You always have confidence to walk into his presence because blood has been shed that makes you acceptable. You don't have to bear the burden of the world and trying to please God so that you can be accepted by him. (laughs) You don't have to bear both those burdens. He's going to help you bear the burden of the world because he's for you. And yes, we will want to please him but he's already dealt with your sin. Even on the days when you blow it, God is for you. Let me close with this. What then do you say to a person who's identified by all these things? What do you say to a person in a post-Christian world who's a Christian, who is chosen by God to be blessed and to be a blessing? What do you say to a person who's a temporary resident on earth whose whose real goods, whose real treasures are stored away safely somewhere else? What do you say to a person who's the object of God's eternally loving purposes? To somebody who's the object of the spirit's constant activity transforming you? What do you say to a person who's chosen to obey Jesus and follow the good shepherd wherever he goes? What do you say to somebody who's chosen for continual cleansing of their sins? Well, you say what Peter says at the end of verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace, God's favor to people who deserve only wrath. God's undeserved favor. May that multiply to you. May may the privileged position that you hold with God settle into your consciousness and direct you every moment. May you know deeply how good it is to be an elect exile. (laughs) That's what he's asking. And may peace be multiplied to you. May God's own peace, may God's shalom be multiplied to you. That means that you would experience soul prosperity, inner well being, satisfied that you lack nothing good in God's care. May you be able to hear the bad news or bad situation in the world and not despair because you know you're in a good place no matter what happens. May that be your experience multiplied over and over and over again in your life. That's what you say to somebody who is the beneficiary of all these things, whose identity is that. It's by embracing all that you are and all that you have in Christ that you can say, yes, grace and peace. (laughs) I'm the recipient of great grace. I can have great peace no matter what. These things cannot be taken away from me by anybody. That's why you have reasons to be a hope-filled Christian in a post-Christian world. And we're going to come back over and over again to these reasons as we go through the letter. Let's pray. Well, it's one thing to hear this, Lord, but it's an act of your Spirit to really apply it to our lives and to give that joy and peace that it, you intend And so that's what we ask you to do. We ask for this to sink in and to start working its way down into our innermost being so that we start to feel like you want us to. (laughs) That we start to have a certain um, level of security (laughs) that surrounds us like a bubble knowing that our true life is somewhere else and being capped, and that you are with us every step in this life. Would you, would you do that in us, Lord? May grace and peace be multiplied to us. In Jesus' name, amen.